Good morning. Today is Wednesday, April 15th, and I'm glad that you are watching. And uh, we've been going through a brief uh, series, what, what I'm intending to not be too long of a series, regarding uh, the sequence of events in the last days. Uh, we're taking time to look at this um, in one part because prophecy by and large, uh, as we mentioned before, tends to be an area of scripture that a lot of people shy away from. Uh, and again, we've mentioned that's somewhat understandable because prophecy seems to be hard to understand in some respects. And there are some nuances of it that I will certainly grant that we are waiting to see how things unfold. But I would also suggest in the same breath that prophecy by and large, because it takes up such a large portion of scripture, about a third of scripture is committed or devoted to prophecy in some sense or another, it's worth it for us to come to understand at least the structure upon which it's built. And I would say that one of the paramount things that we need to understand when it comes to understanding scripture is the place of Israel as the centerpiece of it. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate focus of prophecy. At the end of the day, all of these things are ultimately intended to draw our attention to him. Uh, and that is true for Israel as well. And uh, the reason why Israel is such a prominent and central part uh, in, in terms of understanding prophecy is because God made promises to Abraham uh, that ultimately were based on his own, God's own faithfulness. And if God is not faithful to those promises that he made to Abraham and ultimately therefore to the people of Israel, then as Paul would kind of make the case in Romans 9 through 11, particular chapter 11, I would say, um, that if we can't know that God will be faithful to Israel to keep his promise to them, then we should have legitimate doubt to, as to whether or not he'll keep his promise to us here in the New Testament under the New Covenant as well. And so uh, it's important for us to understand this. And secondly, the reason uh, that we would spend time looking at this uh, is not just to take the edge off of the idea of studying prophecy, to make it a little less intimidating, but also because if we don't understand Israel's place in prophecy, then we are prone to misinterpret a lot of things in scripture. Uh, and I know this may ruffle some feathers and I don't mean it to be that way per se, but it probably needs to be said that there is, uh, there is a, a, a stream of thought within even the Christian church that Israel is not Israel, that the current Israel in the land currently that came back in 1948 is not the same Israel that God made the promises to Abraham uh, through. And so uh, I would say that's completely inaccurate. Um, how could they not be? They are ethnic Jews who are in Israel right now, and it was ethnic uh, Jews that ultimately the promises were given to. Uh, if the question is, well, they're in unbelief, and look at them today, they're not walking with God in so many ways, and, and, and all that kind of a thing. Uh, my answer to that is simply this, when has that ever not been true? Was that true, at, was that ever not true during the Old Testament period? Of course it was true during the Old Testament period. But again, the point we made in our first look at Israel in this, uh, in episode two of our, our sequence series, uh, we pointed out that the faithfulness of uh, these promises, the faithfulness upon which these promises were made was not Abraham's or his descendants. It was God's faithfulness. Of course, Israel in the land today is a fulfillment of prophecy in, uh, that was given in the Old Testament, whether it be uh, in Ezekiel or Isaiah or Hosea or Jeremiah, or all these places that we referenced. Um, they are absolutely the covenant people of God whom God has restored to their land. And not only that, but as we'll look at today, uh, we see that ultimately, uh, even as Paul says, when he refers to Israel being saved, he is not referring just to spiritual Israel, the sense that we all come by faith like Abraham did, 
but ethnically to Israel. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But I'd like to start this morning by opening to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 9 we're familiar with because it reminds us, uh, or it tells uh, ahead of time, of the Messiah, Jesus, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the foal of a, uh, the colt of a donkey, uh, there on the day that he would declare himself to be Messiah and that. So we know that passage probably to some degree. But we don't always uh, stop to look at the last part of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah 12 through 14 deals with um, a number of statements where God says, on that day, on that day, on that day, throughout those chapters. And he makes a lot of reference to restoring Israel and Jerusalem and Judah and um, and, and putting down the enemies around her, ultimately cleansing her people, Israel, cleansing his people, Israel, uh, and then establishing the millennial kingdom. Uh, so it's a breathtaking passage in many respects, but I want to just look at one section of it here. I'm going to start reading in, in uh, Zechariah 12, um, <clears throat> starting in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Okay, Israel, ethnic Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling or staggering to all nations or all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. And on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Now he's talking about the last days. Uh, and the centerpiece here again is Israel. Notice in verse 10, I'm going to jump ahead here. <clears throat> and I will pour out on the house of David, very Jewish, right? David, the house of David, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and, uh, and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weeping bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn, and I'll jump down to chapter 13, verse 1, as the thought continues. On that day, there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanliness or uncleanness. And so God here is making sure that we understand through the prophet Zechariah that a time is coming when he's going to restore Israel and he's going to ultimately allow them as they see Messiah, the one whom they have pierced, this, I would suggest, is at the second coming, when he comes to rescue Israel from the hands of the Antichrist and all the nations that have gathered against them, uh, ultimately seeking to destroy them. As he comes, and as they look upon him in that second coming, the one whom they have pierced, the Bible says in the New Testament that Jesus will return with ten thousands of his saints. He'll be riding on a charger for war. That's not a Dodge Charger, as cool as that might be. It's actually speaking of a white horse riding in, ready for battle. And they will look upon him, his people, his chosen, those his special people of the, of the covenant under Abraham, will look upon him, they'll see the one whom they have pierced, and they'll mourn for him as one does for his son. And after all, he is of Israel. He was born to Israel. He is a son of Israel in his human incarnation. And so Israel will look to him. Now, as we mentioned before, there is a period of time we're in right now prior to that which is called the time of the Gentiles, or the age of grace, as it is sometimes referred to. And I'd like to kind of jump ahead now to Romans chapter 11 for a moment and read a passage that kind of begins to tie this together. As we, uh, probably quicker than yesterday, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll bring this uh, to a close. So let me go ahead and invite you to um, look at uh, Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, he's writing to the Roman believers there, the Christians who are in Rome. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A, per, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles 
has come in. This is the period of time we're in right now, where Paul is referring to, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is letting us know that there is some number of people, Gentiles, who are going to come into the kingdom of God, who are going to be saved by faith. And at that point, the rapture will take place, which he spoke about in 1 Thessalonians, which he spoke about in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and, and so we understand, as we look at the scope of what Paul says on the subject, sort of how this is going to play out. Well, part of the thing that's holding back, ultimately, um, uh, uh, God working again through Israel, is that the church age is happening right now, and people are coming into it. Once that last person is saved, and you might be watching right now, who knows? So let's, you know, let's kind of get with it here, buddy. Um, but um, once that last one comes in, then the rapture will happen, the church will be taken out, and then once again, God will begin to work through Israel. That partial hardening comes upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And he goes on to say that in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, a deliverer will come from Zion, will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I want to continue. Listen to this for a moment. For all of those who would say that Israel is not Israel. Again, he's talking about ethnic Israel. He's drawn a distinction between those who have been uh, part of the church and those who are Israel. Okay. Now, as regards the gospel, Israel, they, he says here, he's referring to Israel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, in other words, God's sovereign choice of them, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, because of the promise made to Abraham, confirmed through Isaac and Jacob, modern Israel is beloved because of the promise that God made to their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And then he goes on to speak about how uh, ultimately, through their disobedience, we came to ultimately become the recipients of the gospel. And in the same way, they will once again be given opportunity. And then at the end of this whole section, Paul just breaks into uh, spontaneous worship as he just, uh, you know, begins to praise the Lord for his unsearchable ways and such. But recognize something here. Paul is referring to Israel as being elect of God because of the promises he made to the forefathers. Israel has not been forsaken. Israel has not been cast off. And this is the part I was a little... Uh, I was kind of warning, it might be a little uh, ruffling of feathers for people. But it is the thinking that the church has replaced Israel that has been responsible for some of the worst atrocities in history, uh, including, and, and certainly including, the Holocaust. Uh, when Jews were cast off not only by Nazi Germany, but even large segments of the church who believed that because she crucified her Messiah, because she was in unbelief, therefore she had cast, been cast off and the promises now transferred to the church. No, what does he say right here? The, call, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, Israel still has that, that, uh, that special place in God's plan. They are still his chosen people and they will remain his chosen people. Why? Simply because God chose them. And we, if, we, if we make the mistake of thinking they've been cast off, then we make an enormous mistake. Uh, that, that frankly has been uh, catastrophic in history. And so we don't want to make that mistake. Remember that part of the promise that God made to Abraham was that he would bless those that bless him and he would curse those that curse him. Now, I don't want to be on the wrong side of that equation and neither should you. So you should, uh, we don't love Israel because they're so good and everything they do is right and we agree with everything that they're doing. No, we love them because they're the apple of God's eye and because God loves them. And so therefore we love them. And I think part of loving them means recognizing that God's not finished 
working through them yet. As a matter of fact, just to kind of move along, as you look into the book of Revelation, which I have suggested previously is a very Jewish book. It reads very much like the Old Testament does. Uh, it's very, it's, it's unique in the New Testament in the way that it's written. Uh, Hebrews maybe comes somewhat close, but uh, really it stands kind of alone in the way that it's ultimately presented. And the reason for that, the reason it reads so odd after chapter three, <clears throat> well, after chapter five, really, is because it takes on a very Old Testament, Jewish, uh, Israel-focused, uh, uh, you know, flavor. Uh, because that section is talking about what is going on during the period of time that God spoke of to Daniel, when he talked about the one who would make a covenant with them, Antichrist, who would break the covenant and all of this. When you read the book of Revelation, you see that um, this now becomes God's wrath upon the earth that ultimately culminates in his saving of his, of his covenant people, Israel, the return of the bride of Christ, and ultimately the culmination of all things. And so when we read the book of Revelation, there are a couple of specific places that we recognize the Jewishness of what's going on. One of those is in chapter 7 and 14, where, uh, where John writes uh, in the vision about the 144,000 uh, witnesses that God sends forth. Um, with all due respect, this is not the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, no Jehovah's Witness, unless they are ethnically Jewish and have some tie to one of the 12 tribes, has anything to do with those passages. Uh, as a matter of fact, John enumerates the 12 tribes that these 12,000 from each of those tribes are from. And so it's a very specifically Jewish-Israel-based thing. Uh, matter of fact, in, in Revelation 11, there is mention of two witnesses who come down. They're not named, but the, the, the powers that they demonstrate, the authority that they're given, seems to be reminiscent of Moses and Elijah. Uh, again, this is a very Jewish thing, so it's very likely that that's what we're talking about. Much could be said about uh, Elijah, who was never really died, but was rather carried off in a chariot of fire as, as uh, Elisha looked on. Uh, Moses, who died, but was buried by God, interestingly, in the book of Deuteronomy. His body was buried by God, and it's just sort of an odd thing to say. The people didn't bury him, God buried him. And then if you jump ahead, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit erratic, but I'm trying to tie a few things together to support what I'm saying. <clears throat> but in the book of Jude, there is mention of Michael the archangel, uh, disputing with Satan over the body of Moses. And Jude just sort of talks about that like it's common knowledge to people. Um, but what does that mean? Well, it may very well be that Moses uh, still had in his person uh, a purpose and a plan uh, in God's ultimate uh, final revelation and that season that the revelation speaks of as one of the two witnesses. It's also interesting, by the way, in Matthew 17, in the, in the uh, Transfiguration, who is standing next to Jesus in the Transfiguration, but Moses and Elijah. So we may see something uh, of them still in the book of Revelation as it's described in chapter 11. So uh, as I bring this around, uh, remember that God's desire is that his covenant people be saved. Uh, they will be saved by putting their trust in Messiah, just like we are as Gentiles. Um, but just because they rejected him in his first coming doesn't mean God's done. As a matter of fact, as we've tried to sort of at least touch on and maybe whet your appetite to look further into, God is going to continue to work through them once the church age is over. And so uh, the events that we see going on around us, uh, starting with Israel's return to the land and, and then so on, uh, should let us know that that time is coming and coming soon. And so we want to be ready for that. But in terms of your understanding of prophecy and scripture, when you read Matthew 24, Jesus says that this thing, this is, he speaks of this in very Jewish terms. 
he's talking to Israel. Uh, when you read Revelation, you have to understand that those chapters after the church is taken away, uh, the first two chapters, uh, chapters two and three, deal with the church. And then there seems to be the rapture in the beginning of chapter four, if that's what it's referring to. But then chapters six through uh, 20 really become uh, God's working uh, ultimately through and then to save Israel. And so when we understand these things, the rest of prophecy begins to fall into place and it helps us to understand what's going on around us. And that is really one of the main points uh, that we study prophecy for. So that will wrap up our discussion on Israel. Um, and uh, we'll move on next time. My intention is to move into Ezekiel 38 and 39, which again are Israel focused, but they also are, uh, it presents a world event that is very soon coming, uh, before which possibly the rapture will happen. It may not, but it may, I tend to think it will. Um, but that event will happen and it will all center on the nations of that region, many of them coming up against Israel and God coming to their rescue profoundly and, and, and clearly and obviously. And those things may ultimately lead to the coming of Antichrist afterwards. So uh, more on that as we continue, but let me go ahead and pray as we finish our time this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you that you've spoken from outside of time to help us know that you're there, that you exist, that you're dealing in the affairs of men, that ultimately you're directing the affairs of men. And you've spoken about the things that are come ahead of time, that we might have assurance, both that you are and that you do. And so we thank you and praise you for this. And we also thank you for your faithfulness to Israel because it reminds us of your faithfulness to us as well. We know that you keep your word and the promises that you've made to them will stand. And therefore we know that the promises you've made to us will stand. And so we thank you, we praise you and bless you. Help us to be students of your word, that our faith might be deepened and that we might be encouraged, especially in the days that we're entering into and that we're now in. Thank you, Father. We look forward to seeing your son and we look forward to him wrapping things up and we look forward to being in your presence. So prepare our hearts for that. Help us to be excited about it and help us to learn about it. In Jesus' name, amen.